President Biden says he has decided how to respond to the drone strike in Jordan that killed three American soldiers from Georgia. Meanwhile, the Iran-backed militia Washington blames says it has suspended its anti-U.S. operations. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a top official at the U.S. Justice Department is leaving her post and warning that Americans should not take tenets, including the rule of law and democracy, for granted. China is dealing with the collapse of its largest real estate company. What it will do is really start to uh, put further pressure on an already uh, ailing Chinese economy. And potentially have an effect worldwide. Also coming up, the winners of the coveted Gershwin Prize. It's 401 News Headlines, The Forecast, and Wall Street numbers are all ahead. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden confirms without offering details that he's decided how the U.S. will retaliate for the drone attack Sunday on a base in Jordan. Three U.S. soldiers died and dozens more were wounded. Iran-backed militants claimed responsibility. NPR's Tamara Keefe says Biden has spoken with the families of the fallen soldiers. White House National Security spokesman John Kirby says President Biden spoke separately with each of the families, sharing condolences and honoring the service of their loved ones. When fallen service members are brought back to the U.S., they come to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, where they're met by family and top military officials for what is called a dignified transfer. In that conversation, he also gauged uh, their feelings about him going to the dignified transfer in Dover on Friday. Uh, All of them supported his presence there. Biden last attended a dignified transfer in 2021 for service members killed in Kabul. Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president. The president says he's ready to shut down the border if given the authority to do so through a bipartisan package the Senate's been working to finalize this week. But House Speaker Mike Johnson says Biden can take executive action. Johnson says he has spoken with former President Donald Trump, who's running for president again. I have talked to, to former President Trump about this issue at length, and um, and he understands that. He understands that we have a responsibility to do here. The president, of course, President Trump, wants to secure the country. But critics accuse Trump of urging allies to stonewall Democrats so that he can use the immigration issue to campaign against Biden. A GOP-led House committee was scheduled to hold a key vote on impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the border crisis. The pioneering Broadway legend Chita Rivera has died. She was 91 years old. In a career that spans 60 years, Rivera appeared in more than 20 Broadway musicals and received three Tonys, including a Lifetime Achievement Award. NPR's Jeff London has more on the life and legacy of an artist widely celebrated as a trailblazer for other Latina artists. One of the last true Broadway stars, Cheetah Rivera created indelible roles. Anita in West Side Story. Anita's gonna get her kicks tonight. Velma Kelly in Chicago. And all that jazz. And Aurora in Kiss of the Spider Woman. Rivera trained in ballet, but found her calling in the theater. And her performances were electric, says theater historian Lawrence Maslon. That's why they're called Broadway legends, because once you saw her, you never forgot her. Along the way, Rivera picked up three Tonys, a Kennedy Center honor, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. From Washington, this 
is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two current and two former Massachusetts state troopers are accused of accepting bribes in exchange for giving passing scores on tests for commercial driver's licenses. Prosecutors say most of the tests were done in Stoughton. Two civilians are also charged in the conspiracy scheme. WBUR's Katie Cole has more. The defendants face charges including conspiracy, extortion, and perjury. Prosecutors allege that in exchange for commercial licenses, the defendants received goods or services like a snowblower or a $10,000 driveway installation. Here's acting U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Joshua Levy. It's always disheartening to discuss allegations that a fellow member of law enforcement has violated his or her oath. Yet preserving the integrity of our legal system, including holding law enforcement accountable, is paramount. Levy said that law enforcement identified over two dozen licenses given to drivers who did not actually pass their tests. He said the RMV has been notified. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Katie Cole. Elizabeth Warren is leading a coalition of U.S. senators asking the Biden administration to declassify marijuana. Right now, the federal government lists marijuana as a Schedule I drug. That means it has a high abuse risk and no safe accepted medical use. Warren and 11 other senators want it classified as a Schedule III drug. Those are substances with a moderate to low potential for physical and psychological dependence. The group says the current rating is out of step with state laws and public opinion. More people are joining the state's health insurance exchange than at any other time in the past decade. Officials with the Massachusetts Health Connector say more than 72,000 people signed up during the most recent enrollment period. Audrey Morris-Gasteyer is the agency's executive director. She says the increase is due in part to people losing coverage from the state's mass health program and expanded eligibility for the low-cost connector care program. So the the income limits for that program were increased from 300 percent of the federal poverty level up to 500 percent of the federal poverty level. That went in effect for coverage starting on January 1st. So that was a big message for us this open enrollment period was to help people realize they would have access to these expanded benefits. The expanded connector care program is a pilot. It's set to run through next year. The Brookline Arts Center is abruptly closing its gallery in Coolidge Corner. A cannabis dispensary had let the Arts Center use its extra space since 2020, but its owner asked for the space back by the end of this month. The Brookline Arts Center tells Brookline News that it's looking for a new gallery space. 27 degrees in the uh, Boston area right now. Tonight, a lot like today. Lots of clouds around. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies again. Should be dry, a little bit warmer in the mid-30s. 27 degrees in Boston at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Department of Defense now says more than 40 people were injured in the drone strike on a U.S. outpost in Jordan near the borders of Iraq and Syria this past Sunday. President Biden called the families of the three soldiers killed in the attack. They were all from Georgia, and their home communities are just beginning to mourn the losses. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting is covering this story. Hey, Grant. Hey, good afternoon. Tell me about the three soldiers who were killed. Well, all three were members of the Army Reserve's 718th Engineer Company based at Fort Moore near the Alabama border. The oldest was Sergeant William J. Rivers. He was 46. He lived in Carrollton, west of Atlanta, and he was an electrician in the Army Reserve. 
in 2018. He was part of a nine-month rotation to Iraq. He'd collected a number of service medals, in fact, for his deployments. He was trained at Fort McGuire Dixon, New Jersey, but he had been with Fort Moore-based companies since last year. Um, Brianna Moffat and Kennedy Saunders were both specialists until receiving posthumous promotions to sergeant from the president just today. Moffat was just 23 years old. Um, she's from Savannah. The mayor there, Van Johnson, he spoke about her today. Our city is heartbroken. And she was a citizen soldier among young people who go to service. The Bible says there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. And so we love Brianna Moffat for loving us. Yeah, the mayor has ordered flags in the city to fly at half staff in her honor. And you know, something that really speaks to how young she was, was that her old high school there in Savannah is planning an assembly in her honor for later this week. Yeah, you said she was 23, it's so young. And I understand the third victim, Kennedy Sanders, he was, he was around the same age. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Saunders was only 24. Um, she was from Waycross, a South Georgia town of less than 15,000 people. You know, it's, it's the kind of place where news travels really quickly. Scott Moy is the county manager in surrounding Ware County. He made the decision to lower flags in the county to half staff as soon as he knew that Ware County had lost one of their own. You know, graduated from high school here, and she actually graduated with my youngest daughter. And um, I don't know, I just, it was something that we wanted to to do to honor her and recognize her and uh, extend our thoughts and prayers to the family. Yeah, Saunders was a basketball player at Ware County High School. She was still a youth soccer and basketball coach when she was home in Waycross. She was also newly an aunt and she volunteered for this deployment. So people there in Georgia are offering condolences. What else are they saying about this incident, about, uh, about everything that happened? Well, you know, in Savannah, Mayor Van Johnson is joining the voices who are asking for some justice for these service members. I hope and trust that the United States of America will actively investigate and hold those accountable for these types of acts. Yeah, and so on Friday, President Biden will attend the dignified transfer of their bodies back to U.S. soil at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. And in Savannah and Waycross, officials say the flags will remain at half-staff until the sun sets on the soldiers' funerals. Thank you, Grant. Thank you for having me. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting. The hit British songwriting team of Elton John and Bernie Taupin have just won the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about this latest in a long list of awards for the duo. First, a top official at the U.S. Justice Department is leaving this week. Vanita Gupta manages a huge portfolio from civil rights and policing to abortion and immigration. She sat down with NPR's Carrie Johnson today to reflect on her tenure. For nearly three years now, Vanita Gupta says the job of associate attorney general, the third highest ranking official at the DOJ, has been a sprint. I have been in situations where I have literally been running down a hallway and crossing another person running down in the opposite direction just so that we can convey information and make sure that we're having the types of robust discussions that we need to on, on matters of the day. Those matters of the day can range from civil rights and the environment to moments of tragedy. 
Gupta says some of the most meaningful and painful experiences have come in meetings with victims of gun violence. Street crime in Chicago, the racially motivated killings at a grocery store in Buffalo, and the murder of 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, in May 2022. These trips are... They are ones that will stick with me forever. This month, federal authorities said some of those people may have died because of the botched law enforcement response. Family members sobbed as they heard the DOJ findings, she says. I talk about them a lot because I think it is important to understand that the trauma that lives in the aftermath of these acts goes on long after the media goes away. She says the DOJ is working to support those survivors and first responders who are traumatized after seeing the most awful things. This has been Gupta's second tour at the Justice Department. In the Obama years, she led the Civil Rights Division, launching systemic investigations of police departments that violated the Constitution. Those pattern or practice investigations fell out of favor in the Trump administration, but Gupta and her colleagues have revived those tools. We are operating to ensure effectiveness, and when we find places where we are less than effective or that need improvement, we have to be willing to take a look at ourselves and see what we can do better. Another top priority for Gupta has been responding to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which threw out an abortion precedent on the books for nearly 50 years. Dobbs dealt a devastating blow to reproductive freedom in the United States, and the decision has been greatly disproportionate in its effect. The greatest burdens have been felt by people of color, those with limited financial means, uh, and other vulnerable populations. As the fight over abortion rights continues, the Justice Department's involved in two pending Supreme Court cases about abortion, supporting access to mifepristone, which is used in medication abortions, and demanding hospitals live up to a law that says facilities that participate in Medicare have to provide abortions when they're necessary to stabilize an emergency room patient. We've heard some of the horror stories of women being denied emergency care, being told to sit in parking lots while they're bleeding out, etc., because doctors literally are afraid of being prosecuted for making the wrong decision or wrong determination about whether something is an emergency requiring abortion care to save a woman's life. The Justice Department's also feuding with Texas in the Supreme Court over that state's move to limit federal immigration agents. Gupta says the DOJ will protect the federal government's interests. As she prepares to leave on Friday, she says she's not certain what comes next for her. I'm going to take some rest, uh, maybe smother my kids with a little overparenting uh, and read some good books. Gupta says she spent her whole life in public service, so she may find a way back again. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Today, Sir Elton John unlocked a new level in awards accumulation. Rocket man, Earlier this month, the musician won an Emmy to go with his Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Awards. Now, Elton John can add another G to his EGOT for Gershwin. As NPR's Netta Ulubi reports, Elton John and his longtime collaborator Bernie Taupin have won the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. The Gershwin Prize, established in 2007, is now one of the most prestigious awards in popular music. And it tends to go to celebrities, such as John and Taupin, the creators of massive hits that have sold hundreds of millions of albums. Lady, darling, she's so 
Previous winners include Paul Simon, Smokey Robinson, and last year, Joni Mitchell. The Gershwin Prize is awarded annually by the Library of Congress. Elton John and Bernie Taupin are the third songwriting duo to win. Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden says of their dozens of hits, she is partial to this one. I think my favorite song has to be Benny and the Jets. <laughs> and I, I smile and laugh about it because it was a number one hit on African-American radio stations. Hayden and her friends, as young people, had absolutely no idea who the musicians were, she says. But we loved that song and played it over and over again. And then we were like, oh, they're great. Oh, my. Their partnership is so similar to Ira and George Gershwin. But these two British gentlemen got the prize named for the Gershwins, says Hayden, for creating a catalog that's become part of the American songbook. It includes chart toppers like Crocodile Rock, Candle in the Wind, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road from 1973. The musicians met in 1967 when they both answered a newspaper advertisement seeking songwriters, said Elton John in 2013 on WHYY's Fresh Air. I I was in a band... I didn't like playing in the band. Uh, I didn't like where we were musically. I was very shy. I was a little overweight. Uh, but I answered this advertisement. That changed my life. That whole thing, that advertisement in the New Musical Express. And for more than half a century, his collaboration with Bernie Taupin has been unorthodox. And, you know, I enjoy the process of writing to his lyrics and the, the weird process that it, of him giving me a lyric, me going into a studio and never writing with him in the same room. It's a magical event. He's a very, and always has been, a very cinematic uh, storyteller in his lyrics. There's a visual side. As soon as I look at the lyrics, visually I can see what's going on. Fans will be able to see both musicians on their local PBS stations when the Gershwin Prize Tribute Concert is broadcast April 8th. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Goodbye, Norma Jean. No, I never knew you at all. You had the grace to hold yourself. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR in about 20 minutes, Pulitzer Prize-winning author N. Scott Malmaday has died. He's credited with starting the contemporary Native American literary movement. Ups and downs at the closing bell on Wall Street today. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ lost ground. The S&P fell less than tenth of a percent. And the NASDAQ dropped more than three-quarters of a percent. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals hopes to win federal approval for its new painkiller by the middle of this year. The company said today that its experimental drug is as effective in treating post-surgical pain as opioids are, but that there's no risk of addiction. The drug was tested on more than 2,000 people recovering from various surgeries. It's now heading to a large late-stage trial. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp. Family run for 60 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. 
Lots of clouds out there, and they should persist overnight tonight, falling just a few degrees from where it is right now, so lows about 24 tonight. Tomorrow should be another cloudy day, but milder temperatures in the mid-30s. Then no relief from the gray for Thursday, maybe not for Friday either. Cloudy skies both days, moving up to 42 degrees. 27 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A case pending before the Supreme Court could profoundly impact when gun laws violate the Second Amendment. It's the latest in ongoing courtroom battles over guns, who can own them, and when the government can pass laws restricting them. But for most of U.S. history, the Second Amendment was actually one of the country's sleepier amendments. There were rarely court cases about it. It was almost never used to challenge laws. So how did the Second Amendment go from being practically overlooked to such a staple of Supreme Court controversy? Ramtin Arablouei, host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline, has the story. It's dawn in Okima, Oklahoma. Two cars, a Plymouth and a Ford, wind down the sleepy, dusty streets. In each car sit men with stockings and handkerchiefs over their faces, pistols and machine guns in their hands. This gang is about to attempt one of the few successful double heists in American history. As the first rays of light bounce off the bank windows, the gang strikes, taking two separate banks at once. Inside, they tie and gag employees, force a bank officer to open the safe. Word of the robberies splashes across local newspapers. Two institutions held up, bandits leaving 15 tied. Okima's two national banks were robbed simultaneously of $19,000 Saturday. The robberies were staged with clock-like precision, and the gang fled. Eventually, Jack Miller, one of those robbers, gets caught crossing state borders with an unregistered sawed-off shotgun. Police arrest him for the illegal gun, and his lawyer does something pretty much unheard of for 1938. He says the law used to arrest Miller violates his Second Amendment right. 27 words in the Bill of Rights that had almost never been litigated before. Probably known to many, certainly etched into my brain, that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is Duke Law professor Joseph Bloker. He says, to some people's surprise, a district judge agrees that Miller's Second Amendment rights had been violated. So the judge orders Jack Miller released. The government appeals that ruling all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the question they pose to the court is basically this. Is the Second Amendment about a militia's right to bear arms 
or in individuals. And the government wins. Uh, unanimous opinion, pretty short. Um, but what the court says is that Jack Miller's possession of this sawed-off shotgun had no reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. We construe the amendment as having relation to military service, and we are unable to say that a sawed-off shotgun has any relation to the militia. Supreme Court Justice James C. McReynolds. In its first true Second Amendment ruling, the Supreme Court seemed to suggest that the Second Amendment, in their eyes, is about a militia's right to bear arms, not an individual's, like Jack Miller. That was the Supreme Court's interpretation for nearly 70 years. As the decades passed, more guns were imported into America, new gun laws were passed, often in response to political violence. Other gun laws were stopped, often by groups like the NRA. And then in 2008, everything would change. My interest was plainly to vindicate the meaning of the Second Amendment and the right secured by the Second Amendment. Robert Levy, a libertarian lawyer, had been on a campaign to get the Supreme Court to say that the Second Amendment applied to people's individual right to bear arms at home, not just a militia's. This is him speaking to NPR in 2008. This is about possessing an ordinary garden variety firearm for self-defense within the home. Levy's team set their sights on challenging a Washington, D.C. law that banned handguns. He vetted people who wanted to change the law and put together a small group, which included a man named Dick Heller, a security guard who wanted a handgun at home for self-defense. By 2008, that case had worked its way up to the Supreme Court. The case would become known as D.C. versus Heller, or as people in legal circles, like Duke Law School's Joseph Bloker call it, just Heller. Heller was, was the court's really first in-depth engagement with the Second Amendment. And in a five to four decision, the court says it is not, the right is not limited to the organized militia. It does encompass at least some right to have some weapons for self-defense, at least in the home. For the very first time, the court ruled the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to have a gun unconnected with service in a militia. But, and this is really, really important, sometimes gets overlooked, the court also says that right, like all constitutional rights, is subject to regulation. And the court actually lists a bunch of regulations which it suggests are presumptively okay. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings. Still, Heller opened the floodgates. So the, the court is bombarded with people asking the court to hear Second Amendment cases for a decade. There's a lot of activity happening in the lower courts, more than a thousand cases in the 10 years after, after Heller. And the justices are just staying out of it. Like, we're just going to let the lower courts figure this out, right? Then in 2022, in a case known as Ruin, the Supreme Court got involved again, this time with another interpretation of the Second Amendment. In an opinion written by Clarence Thomas, the court lays out something new. The court said that the only thing that matters when you're evaluating a modern gun law is whether it is consistent with this nation's history of weapons regulation. Uh, that's the test from now on. The court essentially said any gun law today 
must resemble a gun law from the 17 and 1800s in order to be constitutional. What, what most of us are hoping for is some more guidance. Like, what do you mean about, you know, that the things have to be analogous to, to historical regulations? Are you supposed to bring in historians as experts? Like, give us some more guidance. I think this is one of the things that I think is, is troubling for even people who would self-identify as originalists, that is, people who believe that in a meaningful way the, the meaning of the Constitution was set at the time of its ratification, even for people who, who really feel strongly about that proposition, it's still tough to try to find meaningful guidance for modern gun laws in 1791. That's when the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment were ratified. Currently, the Supreme Court is weighing whether the Second Amendment allows a law that restricts gun rights for people accused of domestic violence. It's a chance for them to lay out how to look back at history to evaluate when gun laws are constitutional. That was Ramtin Arablouei, one of the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. To learn more about the history of the Second Amendment, check out the full podcast episode wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, invasive plants and insects are wreaking havoc on many of the nation's beloved parks. We visit parks in the D.C. area where vines are spreading fast and killing trees. Boston Celtics look to keep the momentum going after last night's come-from-behind win at the Garden. Tonight, they host the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins are off until next week. In the forecast overnight tonight, lots more clouds, temperatures in the mid-20s, just a couple of degrees from where they are now. Tomorrow, overcast once again should be dry, a little bit warmer, temperatures in the mid-30s. 27 degrees now in Boston at 430. WBUR supporters include Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is promising repercussions for a drone attack that killed three American service members in Jordan over the weekend, injuring several dozen others. President Biden says he's decided how to respond, but doesn't want to expand war in the Middle East. Here's National Security Council spokesman John Kirby speaking to reporters aboard Air Force One today on its way to Florida for a campaign stop. It's very possible that uh, what you'll see is um, is a, uh, a, a tiered approach here. Uh, not not just a single action, but potentially multiple actions. 
Kirby says they are still trying to determine which of several Iran-backed militia groups was responsible for the drone killings. President Biden has spoken with the families of the service members and will attend the transfer of their remains at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware later this week. Despite attempts to have Donald Trump's name removed, Illinois election officials announced today that the former president's name will remain on the state's primary election ballot next month. From member station WBEZ, Mawa Iqbal has more. In a unanimous vote, the Illinois State Board of Elections ruled it does not have the power to weigh in on constitutional issues. A group of Illinois voters and a national voting rights group argued Trump's involvement in the January 6th attack disqualifies him from holding office under the 14th Amendment's Insurrection Clause. But Elections Board member Jack Frett says it's not up to the board to decide that. If we exceeded our authority and went beyond the documents and the nominating petitions and looked at the underlying conduct that was alleged in this case, uh, what I believe you would see is an opening of a floodgate of litigation. The challenge will likely move to the Illinois courts now. For NPR News, I'm Mawa Iqbal in Springfield, Illinois. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today. The Dow was up. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Moore Healy is joining more than 20 other governors in asking the U.S. Supreme Court to protect against the drug mifepristone and protect access to it. Mifepristone is the most commonly used abortion pill. The Supreme Court will hear the case in March that attempts to block access to the drug online, through the mail, and in pharmacies. Today, the group of governors filed a brief saying those restrictions could undermine access to abortion and other reproductive care. They call it an attack on women's health and freedom. State education leaders say a program to cover the cost of community college tuition and books has already helped more than 4,500 students. The state launched the so-called Mass Reconnect program last fall. As WBR's Kara Young reports, it announced the update today at the annual Condition of Education Summit. Officials with Governor Mara Healey's administration say the program fits into the larger effort to stabilize, heal, and transform the state education system after the pandemic-era disruptions. Higher Education Commissioner Noe Ortega says the governor hopes to expand the reach of Mass Reconnect next year with a proposed $24 million budget increase. We also want to get our institutions in this following year to be thinking more intentionally about what they can do in the area of student support. Right, because not, it's not enough to just get students to come into the door and enroll in our colleges. What are we going to do for them next? Additional program data will be released in February at the next Board of Higher Education meeting. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Local housing nonprofit Pine Street Inn is celebrating a milestone. The organization has completed work on 350 housing units. It's part of a wave of new construction the organization took on after it got a $15 million grant from the Yonke Foundation. Pine Street Inn Executive Director Lindia Downey says the money helped double the rate at which units are built. We were building 20, 30 units a year, which just isn't enough to keep up with the demand, obviously. And our shelters were overflowing. But it's hard for us to make the dollars work on a 20 or 30 unit building. We really have to be thinking bigger. And this grant did that. Downey estimates the remainder of the grant will help develop up to 150 more units. In the forecast, sunshine's taking a few days off. Clouds have settled in, should be overcast overnight tonight, about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds inching up to the mid-30s. Thursday could be cloudy again, a little bit milder. Temperatures in the low 40s. 27 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. 
Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What impact will the implosion of China's largest real estate developer have on the global economy? Evergrande built a property empire in hundreds of cities through massive amounts of borrowing. It's now about $300 billion in debt, and this week a court in Hong Kong ordered its liquidation. Dexter Tiff Roberts is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. Thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be on. Evergrande has been slowly imploding for a few years now. How did it go from being the biggest company in one of China's biggest industries to now being liquidated? Well, you know, if you it really began all the way back in 2020. So the Chinese government announced something uh, they called the Three Red Lines, which was a policy that aimed to encourage and, and, and do some arm twisting to get some of the bigger property developers, including Evergrande, to start to shed some of their debt. To a degree, they've been a victim of their own success. Uh, we've seen now for three years a, a slump in the property market, which has hit the economy very hard. And we're, now we're seeing this spectacular, I guess, a slow motion implosion of of Evergrande brings us to yesterday with the announcement by the Hong Kong court ordering it into liquidation. And there have been fears that Evergrande's collapse could set off a chain reaction of defaults. I mean, a couple of years ago, our colleague Emily Fang spoke with a contractor in China named Sheng Weixing, who had not been paid for his work building apartments for Evergrande. The last two days have been filled with endless fights, with the police and with desperate homebuyers. Evergrande has no money to pay us back, so we're also fighting with renovators and other contractors. So tell us about the potential ripple effects of this. Yeah, well, at the height of the property sector, it made up something close to a quarter of the entire GDP. That is wild. Now, it's been brought down a bit with the downturn in the economy, but this gives you a sense of how much of the economy is actually involved. We have the developers, obviously, like Evergrande, uh, but we also have builders. We have the renovators. We have the white goods companies that are selling products that go into these apartments. And so if a big property developer like Evergrande starts to not be able to make its payments, that has a ripple effect that goes right down through the entire economy. I've read that this is not like the implosion of Lehman Brothers, which was one of the early events in the global financial collapse. But can you explain why this doesn't raise those kinds of fears? Because it certainly sounds scary. Well, I mean, first of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, the process of, of this uh, massive downturn in the property sector, and now we're seeing the potential liquidation of Evergrande initially was prompted by a policy decision by the Chinese government. They wanted to deleverage, and so they they started to force property developers like Evergrande to stop borrowing so much. And the other thing about Lehman, uh, the, uh, it was obviously operating in the U.S. economy, um, the U.S. financial system being very much tied into the global financial system as well. China is very, very different. 
I believe the total of the 300 billion or so uh, in debts that Evergrande now holds, only a few billion are actually held by overseas creditors. Hmm. So this is going to have a very different effect. Um, it will not have a uh, as direct an effect as Lehman did by any means on the global economy. Rather, what it will do is really start to uh, put further pressure on an already ailing Chinese economy. And that ultimately becomes very bad news for uh, the U.S. and the rest of the world. Real estate is such a big part of the Chinese economy. What could this mean for China economically? For China, it's it's a very, very big deal. Um, as I mentioned earlier, up to a quarter of the entire economy has been driven by the property sector. In terms of the average Chinese, you have a situation uh, where something like 80% of household assets are held in the apartments that people own. So one very uh, negative impact we've seen on the Chinese consumer is the fact that they've seen you know, this uh, basically a negative wealth effect. They've seen the depreciation of their most important asset, the apartment that they live in. And this has um, had a knock-on effect on consumer confidence. We're, we've seen multiple quarters now of very low confidence by the Chinese consumer. You add this to the fact that the property market is doing so badly, and it's just, it's just even more strain across the Chinese economy. Dexter Tiff Roberts is Atlantic Council Senior Fellow and Director of China Affairs at the University of Montana. Thanks a lot. Thank you. this week of the death of N. Scott Momaday at his home in Santa Fe. The novelist, poet, essayist, and painter was the first Native American to win a Pulitzer Prize, and he ushered in a renaissance in Native American literature. Megan Kamarick at member station KUNM has this remembrance. Former poet laureate Joy Harjo of Muskogee Nation says Mamaday's 1969 novel House Made of Dawn would establish him as a father for contemporary Native literature. Not just for me, but for many of us coming up, like Leslie Marmon Soko and others coming up as young Native people starting to write and tell stories and to think about what it meant to be a Native writer and particularly Native writers of our own tribal nations. Mamaday got his bachelor's degree and taught at the University of New Mexico. Finney Coleman, an associate professor there, says he wasn't just a great Native writer. House Made of Dawn is one of the world's great pieces of literature. At a writer's gathering in New Mexico in 2002, Mamaday talked about the work of writers. I think that we're constantly redefining the human condition. And that is, uh, as far as I can see, the, the writer's uh, subject. What is it to be human? What is it to be human here and now? Navar Scott Mamaday was born in 1934 in Lawton, Oklahoma, into the Kiowa tribe. His formative years were spent in other Native communities, including the Navajo Nation and Jemez Pueblo in New Mexico. He also taught school on the Hickoria Apache Nation. Steeped in indigenous oral traditions, Mamaday then got a formal poetry education at Stanford, where he received a master's degree and a doctorate. Joy Harjo says he skillfully blended those ideas. He took a form like a novel and made it very particularly Kiowa, you know, like Kiowa American. You know, that was a gift. 
Mama Day told New Mexico PBS in 2014, oral tradition is often more vital than writing. It exists at the level of the human voice, and it's immediate. People who do not have writing take storytelling very seriously because they must. The story is always one generation from extinction. So you have to listen and you have to remember what you hear. Mama Day published some 19 books of fiction, poetry, and essays. In 2022, he was inducted into the Academy of American Arts and Letters. He also became an accomplished painter. For NPR News, I'm Megan Kamrick in Albuquerque. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Forests in national parks provide a green oasis for visitors and residents and essential habitats for wildlife. Many of those forests are at risk, even though they're protected. For member station WAMU here in Washington, Jacob Fenston has this story about what's going wrong in these ecosystems and what people are doing to reverse the trend. On a wooded hillside in a residential neighborhood, Nathan Harrington is sawing away at thick vines of English ivy encircling the trunk of a red oak tree. So a lot of people find this very difficult and tedious, but I've had 10 years of practice, refined my technique, and I find it very satisfying. Harrington is director of the nonprofit Ward 8 Woods Conservancy. This small patch of forest in D.C. is on national park land. Just about every tree has invasive vines climbing the trunk. Some you can't even see the tree bark. He estimates that without this sort of intensive and sweaty intervention, this little forest patch would disappear within a few decades. Just because an area has been wooded for a long time doesn't mean that we can take it for granted and assume that it's always going to stay that way. If we don't go in and maintain it, it will... Uh, cease to be at some point. In forests in the eastern U.S., it can be easy to miss the fact that things are going awry. Liz Matthews is a biologist with the National Park Service. This forest looks healthy, perhaps, on a quick look, but if you look behind you, you see a tree that has fallen, cracked in half and fallen. To see how an eastern deciduous forest is doing, don't look up at the mature trees. Look down at the ground. That's where you'll find the next generation of the forest. That up-and-coming generation is in big trouble. To understand why, you have to understand how eastern forests regenerate. Matthews authored a study looking at forest regeneration in national parks up and down the East Coast. Using 12 years of data, they put each park into one of four categories, ranging from secure to imminent failure. 70% of the parks we looked at were either an imminent failure or probable failure. How many were secure? One. That was Acadia National Park in Maine. The good news is, despite the huge scale and scope of the problem, the causes are pretty straightforward. Some of the pioneers trying out solutions are at Catoctin Mountain Park in Maryland. Catoctin's resource managers began to notice that the park had a lack of forest regeneration back in the 1970s. The park's Lindsay Donaldson. Catoctin staff suspected a culprit, too many deer. Research has shown that vegetation damage occurs when deer populations exceed 20 per square mile, and Catoctin once had 123 deer per square mile. White-tailed deer are a native species, but when there are too many deer, they devour baby trees. Catoctin was the first national park in the area to cull deer starting in 2010. 
The results have been encouraging. The deer population is now about one-sixth of what it was, and there are almost 20 times as many tree seedlings per acre. When deer devour native plants, they also make space for invasives to grow. Raise your hand if you need gloves right now. On a rainy Sunday morning, a group of volunteers is heading into the woods to pull invasive vines and bushes. Kathy Sykes is leading the group, organized by Rock Creek Conservancy in D.C. Our number one priority is trees. So like straight ahead there, it looks like they Invasives often grow in thick mats, crowding out and smothering native seedlings. When a gap in the canopy opens up, invasives rush in and soak up the sunlight. But here in this part of the forest, volunteers have made a big dent in the problem. Dana McCormick is here most weekends and says she can see a big difference since she started volunteering a couple of years ago. In two years, we are tipping the scale in our favor. For NPR News, I'm Jacob Fenston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds continue overnight tonight. Should just fall a few degrees from where it is right now, so lows about the mid-20s. Tomorrow should be another cloudy day, but milder temperatures in the mid-30s. No relief from the gray on Thursday. Maybe not for Friday either. Cloudy skies, but moving up to about 42 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics look to keep the momentum going tonight after last night's come-from-behind win at the Garden. Tonight, they host the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Coming up on WBUR, we remember a true legend of Broadway theater. Immigrant goes to America. Cheetah Rivera has died at the age of 91. She appeared in more than 20 Broadway musicals over six decades, creating a number of indelible roles, including Anita in West Side Story. We're remembering Cheetah Rivera today here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert, February 9th and 10th. Tickets at theumbrellaarts.org. Palestinian journalists have become Gaza's window to the world, documenting the destruction, the killings, despite the danger. 22-year-old Plesti al akkad is one of them. I don't want the world to see us as numbers only. No, I want them to know us, to know how we're feeling. Alaka talks about her reporting and the future she wants to see. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some comedians always seem to be on the hunt for new material. And then there are others whose lives seem to be chock full of stories just waiting to be shared on stage. That describes Moshe Kasher, who spoke about his new memoir with our colleague, Rachel Martin. Maybe you know someone like this. That person who seems to have had a hundred different lives. 
And when they regale you with stories of these lives, part of you is envious because you too want to have sucked the marrow out of life while dancing half naked in the desert. But that envy evaporates pretty fast when they tell you about the other lives that included a whole lot of suffering and loneliness. Moshe Kasher is that guy, but he doesn't want your pity. He doesn't want your envy. More than anything else, he wants to make you laugh. And he does so very well in his new memoir, Subculture Vulture, which is about six subcultures that he's inhabited throughout his life. One of them is the world of Burning Man, hence dancing naked in the desert. We talked a lot about how he found healing there. But as I said, this guy's had a lot of lives. So he also writes about being the child of deaf parents and fitting into the world of Alcoholics Anonymous and conservative Judaism and comedy and the rave scene. And while he's learned to see harmony in all these identities, as a kid, his world was anything but harmonious. I had deaf parents, uh, an identity crisis where I would fly back home six weeks a year to cosplay as a Hasidic Jew. I was in Oakland public schools, sort of socially isolated. I mean, everything was so chaotic. And that was the void that when I found a group of bad boys who said, why don't you join us at the back of the, the portables and we can smoke cigarettes and we can get loaded together. It was like a, a molecular reconfiguration. It was like, I have found people that, that uh, accept me. I have found people that will love me, warts and all, because they have warts too. And so by the time I was three years into hanging out with those kids, uh, I was in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. I had slid down the ladder very quickly. And I said to myself, if I keep living like this, it's I, I'm going nowhere or, or I'm, going to, I'm going to perdition. And I, that's when I got sober. And that's when I, you know, I just, you know, the thing that happens when you get sober is the void you were trying to fill with drugs and alcohol is it's, it's raw. It's like a raw wound you know, yeah. and the way that I healed that wound in so many ways was by uh, finding these worlds where I could be, I could find that same feeling of like, these are my people, but that wouldn't mm -hmm. destroy me, would, would build me up. How does that, so Burning Man, huge festival in the desert, uh, alternative cultures, um, an anarchist bent. I don't know. You say other words that fill in the blanks. Well, I'll tell, I can say words, but the words depend really on when you're talking about it. You know, I started uh, attending Burning Man in 1996 when I was 16 years old. And I had heard that there was a rave in the desert. And at that time, that was all that I needed to pack a car and drive eight hours uh, east and figure out what was, what was waiting for me there. And when I got there, it was not, a, I don't know what it, I didn't know what it was, but it was not a rave. It was some other thing. It was a dangerous, wild, artistic, culture jamming, fractalated, just mind bending experience. And I was clean and sober, 16 years old. And it. Right. <laughs> That's the part I don't, I sort of don't get. I will fess up to never having been to Burning Man. Um, but I, friends of mine who have gone and things I have read make it seem that being sober would be a, a, like a strange experience to be there as, as, as someone well, that, in recovery in particular, because isn't it? Uh, well, that's the part that is, um, I didn't want to be some buttoned up recovery boy for the, all of my the late teens and twenties. I wanted to feel like I could have a life that was exciting and fun and filled with experiences and just like packed full of life. 
And I know that both Burning Man and the rave scene both elicit kind of an eye roll from people that are cynical uh, about those things. But both of them were as uh, healing a therapeutic elixir as as the 12 steps in AA was. It was as spiritual an experience as the Torah was for me in Judaism. Can, can you say more about what that means? Who were you when you were there? In the Jewish religion, every fall there is uh, is our high holidays, the uh, the days of awe, you know, where you start to take stock of yourself throughout the year. Uh, you wrote Rosh Hashanah is when that begins. You start to consider the mistakes you've made, the steps that you wish you'd taken instead, and then Yom Kippur, you you you're sort of cleansed. And I really like that about Judaism that every year you just start fresh. But I've incorporated Burning Man into that. Um, and I hope this doesn't elicit an eye roll, but it's just the truth that my days of awesome. I don't eye roll. I'm not gonna. Eye you're roll. not That's an eye so roller. You're, you're, no, you're an, you're 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 an open person. But I I do think when I go now, I have incorporated the burning of the man into the Jewish days of awe. I can I can just feel somebody going, "Give me a break." Yeah, no, I yeah. But that yeah, is, I, I have synthesized it. If the burning of the man has any actual mm. meaning for me. It, it really, you know, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Just a, an excuse to party in the desert. It's a weird Silicon Valley uh, drug-fueled corporate retreat. But for me, <laughs> when I see the man burn, what it means to me is uh, that we are all, you know, a man or a woman or a person about to catch fire. We are impermanent. And so that's where my days of awe start. When I see the man burn, I go, I am dying. I will die. I will be gone. What have I done in the last year that I, uh, that I enjoyed? And what would I like to do in the next year to, to create, to pack more experiences into this life? Is that your opening line when you go on stage to do a set? <laughs> I am dying. No, that's what I say and at the... You are too. No, that's what I say in the middle of the set when it's not going well. Okay, I am dying. <laughs> this is not what I wish would happen. But you know what? Life is impermanent. We are all about to catch fire. <laughs> so, I mean, this this is how you, you, you pay your rent. You are a stand-up comic. Um, this is yet another subculture that you would have it. If some young up and comer whippersnapper comic came up to you and asked what your philosophy of comedy is, what would you say? Uh, make people laugh. I, I, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the writing in this book about comedy is my, my reckoning and the reckoning that everybody in comedy is having with like what the responsibility of the comedian is and what I offer as my the closest thing to a philosophy I have about comedy is that the job of the comedian is to make the audience laugh. I know that that sounds reductive, but I think that it's the truth that and that there is value just in that, that uh, there is value in people watching something that makes them have joy for an hour, pack full of fun and joy for one hour. Now, sometimes that joy comes from somebody speaking truth to power. Um, okay. you know, George Carlin. And sometimes that joy comes from somebody just watching a, a guy being silly, Steve Martin. And I don't think that one is uh, the more righteous version of comedy. I think that comedy is for people to laugh and, and that sometimes that includes philosophy and sometimes that includes uh, ridiculousness, but there is spiritual and there is philosophical value in bringing people that experience. Moshe Kasher. Comedian and writer, his most recent book is called Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes. Moshe, thank you so much. This was so fun. My pleasure. I had a great time. Thank you for talking to me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR, 27 degrees in Boston. Should fall just a few degrees tonight to about 24. Tomorrow we should wake up to clouds. They should spend the day, in fact, temperatures about 35 degrees. Again, 27 in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Republicans in Congress are moving closer to impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. We cannot allow this man to remain in office any longer. The time for accountability is now. Lawmakers claim Mayorkas has failed to enforce immigration laws. Democrats say the move is pure politics. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Toyota issues a do not drive order for some older Corollas and RAV4s. It's part of a years-long effort to persuade American drivers to fix cars with defective Takata airbags. Also, the challenges of treating and housing a rapidly aging homeless population. And researchers are learning more about why moths and other insects are drawn to light. All of a sudden, there's a totally new observation of this phenomenon, and it comes with this new explanation that really hadn't been put out before. What high-speed video has revealed coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Tributes are pouring in for the three U.S. Army Reserve soldiers killed Sunday in a drone attack on a military base in Jordan. The youngest of the victims was 23-year-old Brianna Moffitt, a native of Savannah, Georgia, who was promoted posthumously from specialist to sergeant. Benjamin Payne of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. Speaking at Savannah City Hall, Mayor Van Johnson honored Sergeant Brianna Moffitt as a hero who made the ultimate sacrifice. The Bible says there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. We recognize that there is no greater love. And so we love Brianna Moffitt for loving us. Johnson ordered city flags be flown at half-staff and called for the U.S. military to hold accountable those who carried out the drone attack. A group of Iran-backed militias has claimed credit. All three U.S. Army Reserve soldiers killed were Georgia residents. For NPR News, I'm Benjamin Payne in Savannah. A bipartisan group of lawmakers in the Senate is working to finalize details of a bill that would strengthen security at the southern border. But as NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, the legislation appears to be dead on arrival in the GOP-led Senate or House. Even though the details of the Senate bill have not been released, House Speaker Mike Johnson says the measure is not enough to secure the southern border. We have to insist, we have a responsibility, a duty to the American people that the border catastrophe is in. 
ended. And just uh, trying to whitewash that or do something for political purposes that it appears that may be is not going to cut it. And that's a non-starter in the House. Johnson has been under mounting pressure from Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump and hard-right members of the House to reject the bill. Johnson has denied trying to tank the Senate bill in order to help Trump on the campaign trail, but said that he had spoken to the former president at length. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. U.S. consumers are feeling more confident heading into the new year. The conference board says its consumer confidence index was up for a third straight month. Consumer confidence is closely watched by economists and spending on the part of consumers accounts for roughly two-thirds of overall U.S. economic activity. The International Monetary Fund is raising its forecast for global economic growth, but as NPR Scott Horsley explains, different parts of the world are enjoying growth at different rates. The IMF now expects the global economy to grow by 3.1 percent this year, thanks in part to stronger U.S. growth and falling inflation. There's a growing gap between the economic fortunes of the U.S. and Europe. Last week, we learned the U.S. economy grew at a better-than-expected annual pace of 3.3 percent in the fourth quarter of last year. That's in contrast to the Eurozone, where government trackers said today there was zero growth in October, November, and December. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks were mixed on Wall Street. The Dow was up 133 points. The Nasdaq closed down 118 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. State employees are preparing the Melnia Cass Recreational Center in Roxbury to shelter migrant families who've been sleeping at Logan Airport. The new shelter is slated to open tomorrow. The venue can host up to 100 families. WBUR's Paula Mora reports people in the community feel they are losing a home for their activities. A youth track and field club that has been practicing at the Melnia Cass Recreation Center for over a decade will lose its training venue under the plan. Seku Diude is a volunteer coach with the Boston United Track and Cross Country Club. He says the group empathizes with the immigrant situation, but needs a space for the club's 30 kids to practice. These are local residents that rely on this program, and they enjoy it and they love it. It's an outlet for them. And they should not be punished, so to speak. He says the club is checking with other venues in Boston to continue Saturday practice free of charge. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. Six people, including two state troopers and two former troopers, face extortion, fraud, and other charges. They're accused of taking bribes in exchange for giving passing scores to people seeking their commercial driver's license, no matter how the applicant did on the test. Commercial licenses are needed in order to operate tractor trailers and school buses in the state. Several of the defendants made a brief appearance today in federal court in Boston. A new report finds one in nine people who died by suicide in the state were current or former military military personnel. The report concludes veterans who experienced military sexual trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, or substance use disorder are especially vulnerable. Massachusetts Department of Veterans Services Secretary John Santiago encourages veterans who need help to reach out. My message to veterans across the board, whether they are impacted by mental illness or not, or have thought about suicide, is that we hear you, we see you, we want to care for you and work closely with you to address what's going on. The report recommends expanding access to both formal and informal peer services for veterans. It also recommends more behavioral health training and services for veterans, active service members, and their families. If you or somebody you know is in a crisis, call or text National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. 
in the forecast. 27 degrees now. Clouds in for the night tonight. Should be down around 24 degrees. More clouds tomorrow, inching up to the mid-30s. Thursday, cloudy again, a little bit milder in the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There's important news for certain Toyota owners, cars from the early 2000s, and more specifically, their airbags. We'll have details in a few minutes. First... The U.S. border with Mexico has become a central issue in American politics. President Biden and former President Donald Trump offer dueling promises to address the issue. And today, in Washington, a House committee is considering articles of impeachment accusing Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas of failing to enforce the nation's immigration laws and breaching the public trust. The committee chairman, Republican Mark Green of Tennessee, accused Mayorkas of putting his political preferences ahead of upholding the law. We cannot allow this man to remain in office any longer. The time for accountability is now. Let's begin our coverage with NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, what is the House Republicans' argument for ousting Mayorkas? Well, the GOP impeachment resolution charges him with two counts, as Mary Louise noted, willfully ignoring the law and breaching the public's trust. During today's markup, over and over again, Republicans really singled out Mayorkas as the person they say is responsible for the situation at the southwest border. But hardline conservatives have really been pushing to impeach Mayorkas ever since Republicans took control of the House chamber last January. There's been a split inside the House Republican conference about whether or not they had sufficient evidence to move forward. But the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who's been dealing with some strong criticism from some of his members on the right has decided to go ahead with this impeachment process. Some of those moderates from Midwest districts have been hesitant about impeaching Mayorkas, but now they say they're ready to go ahead and do that. Um, They say the border security uh, issue is really a top issue they're hearing about from their constituents back home. And what do Democrats say? Many of them seem to agree that the situation on the border is serious. How are they viewing the accusations against Mayorkas? They do. And they're arguing that Republicans should work across the aisle to deal with the situation that they've been arguing as a crisis. In terms of the impeachment process, they're really saying it's a sham. And the top Democrat on the committee, Benny Thompson, is saying it's really all about scoring political points. They pointed out during today's session that no official has ever been impeached for policy differences. And this process is really about using the issue Uh, of the border to talk about the 2024 election. Uh, Here's Benny Thompson talking about House Republicans today. They don't want progress. They don't want solutions. They want a political issue. And most of all, they want to please their disgraced former president. Well, let's bring a national political correspondent, Mara Lyason, to talk about the broader political fight here. Hi, Mara. Hi, Ari. We've been discussing this proposed border bill for weeks, and the White House has been part of these talks. But over the weekend, President Biden took a surprising position. Here he is at a campaign event in South Carolina. That bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. A bipartisan bill would be good for America and help fix our broken immigration system and allow speedy access for those who deserve to be here. And Congress needs to get it done. 
Mara, what does he mean by shut the border? And why is he making what sounds like a shift in tone? Yes, it's certainly a shift in tone. And some uh, immigration advocacy groups and progressives aren't so happy about that. What he means is that the bill would allow him, give the president the power to, if uh, asylum seekers, illegal crossers got above a certain number in a week or a day, he could stop taking applications for some period of time. Mm. But what's really happening here is that Biden has come to understand just how bad the politics of immigration are for Democrats. Voters blame him and his party. They consider the border a federal presidential responsibility. It's national security. They want the border under control, and it isn't. But what really shifted things was when the Republican governors of Texas and Florida started busing migrants north to Democratic cities and states. Remember, they sent them to Martha's Vineyard, but they also sent them to New York and Illinois. Mm -hmm. And Governor J.B. Pritzker, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said they cannot handle this amount of asylum seekers. So they've been pressuring the White House, too. So now Biden's taking a tougher line, saying he would sign a bill that puts limits on the number of asylum seekers. He also wants something else because the bill was paired with aid to Ukraine. And Republicans said to him, this is the price you have to pay if you want aid to stop Putin's invasion. You're going to have to agree to a very conservative border bill. Biden said, OK, I will. And then kind of like Lucy with the football in Peanuts, Republic House Republicans said, well, actually, there's no compromise you can agree to that would allow us to pass a border bill and give you some political credit. And some of that may have to do with the opposition that's been coming from former President Trump, who is putting pressure on Republicans to reject a bill, even though we haven't actually seen the text or the language. Here's Trump at a rally over the weekend. As the leader of our party, there is zero chance I will support this horrible open borders betrayal of America. It's not going to happen. Back to you, Deirdre. Does Trump's opposition to a deal mean Republicans in Congress would not sign on to any agreement? I mean, some Senate Republicans are ready to to, to be part of an agreement. But I think the vast majority of Republicans on the Hill are really reluctant to go uh, to be cross with the head of their party. That's Donald Trump right now. I mean, what they're talking about in this potential bipartisan deal is pretty conservative. These are kinds of proposals that some of them were in place under former President Trump. But conservatives are not ready to cross Trump. Um, And I think right now, even those who say in the time of divided government, like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, this isn't, it's much harder to get something like this done when Trump opposes it. And the House Speaker Mike Johnson has already called this a non-starter, and he's consulting with former President Trump. So, Mara, why would Senate Democrats agree to work on a bill that the progressive base has real problems with, that Deirdre describes as pretty conservative? It's a sign of how bad this issue has become for Democrats. Democrats are, are trailing Republicans on on who, which party could help with immigration by like 30 points. And to show how far... Senate Democrats have moved. In the past, they've always insisted that any big deal on immigration includes some protection for the dreamers, those people who were brought to the country as very young children, undocumented. And there's nothing about the dreamers in this bill. And also, they have a big incentive. They want aid for Ukraine. They want to stop Putin from taking over Ukraine. And I think if this bill does die, you're going to start to hear Democrats saying that a vote against this bill is a vote to help Putin It would be a huge defeat for NATO. They see the Ukraine war as a proxy war between NATO and Russia. And uh, they're going to have to find a different way to get aid to Ukraine if this dies. NPR's Mara Liason and Deirdre Walsh. Thank you both. Thanks, Ari. 
Okay, two news that Toyota has issued a do not drive order for some older Corollas and RAV4s. The advisory has lots of words in all caps, words like urgent, serious injury, and death. And there is good reason for these words, as NPR's Camila Dominoski is here to explain. Hey, Camila. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, tell me more. What is this do not drive order about? Well, it's the latest in the Takata airbag saga. So starting decades ago, Takata, this company, manufactured airbag inflators that turned out to be extremely dangerous. These airbags didn't just inflate, they would explode, sending metal shrapnel through the car, which is exactly as bad as it sounds and has caused injuries and deaths. And it sparked this enormous recall. Tens of millions of vehicles, a whole bunch of brands. For years, regulators and companies have been trying to get all these vehicles fixed. So this is not a new recall from Toyota. This is Toyota trying to draw attention to this existing recall. And it is not just one company. There are lots of vehicles where nobody's brought them in for the fix yet. So folks are still driving around with these dangerous airbags. Okay. And you said the the existing recall was tens of millions of vehicles. Is that how many we're talking about for this latest warning? Well, tens of millions of vehicles were recalled. A lot of them have been fixed, but millions still have not been fixed, right? So that's a problem in itself. It's a potentially deadly defect. Uh The fix for it is totally free. Then this do not drive order, it's for a subset of those vehicles that are extra dangerous. So Toyota's new order, it's about 50,000 vehicles, but there are other vehicles that are already under a do not drive order. BMWs, Hondas, Dodges. Partly that's because when they're not fixed, these airbags get more dangerous the older they get. Once they're fixed, they're fine. And again, that fix, it is totally free. My question, if this has been going on for years, if we've known for years, why have these vehicles not been fixed already? Owners might not know. With a new vehicle, you go into the dealership for routine maintenance, and they'll definitely flag this kind of stuff. With an older vehicle that's not under warranty, you're probably not going to the dealership. Companies have sent letters out, but maybe people moved or didn't pay attention to a letter. These older used vehicles have changed hands a whole bunch of times. So maybe they don't know. Maybe people know, but it's hard to get to a dealership, or they just can't do without a car for as long as it would take for a repair. Aaron Witte is with the Consumer Federation of America. Part of the problem is that we're putting this burden on consumers to make sure that their cars get fixed, and that's the real issue. Now, some states are actually considering laws to require these recalls to be fixed, any safety recall to be fixed, or a vehicle can't be registered. Witte says that would actually be even worse because it takes that burden and makes it punitive in a way that mostly hurts low-income drivers with these older cars, creates the risk of traffic stops for unregistered vehicles, which has extra risks for people of color. Her group wants to require used car dealers to fix safety recalls before they sell a used car. Right now, no federal law requires that. That would catch some of these vehicles when they're sold. But legislation to require that hasn't gone anywhere. Okay. And for those of us driving around, what should drivers do? Yeah, if you drive any car, older Toyota or not, you should check for recalls regularly. There's an app called Safer Car from the government, or you can go to nhtsa.gov recalls. And if there's a recall, you know, get the fix, right? In this case, with these airbags, Toyota says dealers can help with the inconvenience. They might bring a mobile repair to your house. They might pick up the car from where you live. And again, it's free to get that this fixed. That is the takeaway. It's free. Let's get it done. And Pierre's Camila Dominoski, thank you. Thank you.
Thanks. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Coming up after 5.30, why French farmers are blocking highways surrounding Paris with their tractors. Also, why are bugs drawn to light anyway? That's coming up in about 20 minutes. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay, near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life. ElliottHotel.com. Ups and downs at the closing bell on Wall Street. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ lost ground. The S&P fell less than a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ dropped more than three-quarters of a percent. Tom Brady's nutrition and clothing companies are merging with a Boston-based sportswear firm, TB12 Nutrition, Brady Brand Apparel, and the brand Noble Noble are now under one umbrella. The firm say they want to become a complete wellness company with a focus on sports gear and nutrition. It's not clear where the companies will be headquartered. Noble is based in Dorchester. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Clouds have settled in for the night. Tonight should be overcast, about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds inching up to the mid-30s. 27 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There is a tired-out storyline when it comes to relationships, and it goes something like this. Sex is great in the beginning, but then life happens, and, well, sex moves way down on the to-do list and may not even be there at all. Emily Nagoski is a sex educator who knows the biology and sociology of intimacy. In fact, she had such a big hit with her book, Come As You Are, that her work got in the way of her own sex life. Even though I was thinking and talking and reading and writing about sex all the time, I was so stressed by the process that I had no interest in actually having any sex with my husband. Nagoski discovered that the fastest way to destroy your sex life is to worry about it. So if your starting place can be wherever I am right now is normal and I'm okay, even if it's not where I would choose to be, let me get to know what's true right now so that I can explore with curiosity what some strategies might be to move in a direction that feels more comfortable. So that is exactly what she did. And the result is a new book. It's called Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections. And before we dig into it all, a heads up, this conversation is going to focus on sex and intimacy, and it might not be appropriate for all listeners. When we spoke, I asked Emily Nagoski where she started. So the first thing was I tried to follow my own advice of like scheduling sex. If I can get to the point of starting, we're all good. 
And the difficulty was we couldn't get there. So I tried scheduling it. I tried just putting my body in the bed and seeing what would happen. But I was stuck in some space in my brain that felt a million miles away. So my next step, honestly, was to talk to my individual therapist about it. Because I wanted to make sure that when I talked to my partner about it, which was the step that came after, I would have a clear enough insight into my own experience that I could talk about it in a way that would lead us towards solutions. What is your advice for someone who wants to start having some of these conversations with their partner or partners about improving their sex lives? I mean, Many of us don't even have these conversations with ourselves, let alone the people yep. who we're in romantic relationships with. Like, it's easy to talk to a partner about the fact that they forgot to pay the water bill, but this feels harder than that. Yeah, it's easier, in fact, to have sex with someone than it is to talk about that sex with that same person. And I think there's two primary barriers people face. The first is that they're afraid they're going to self-disclose something about their sexuality and their partner will be appalled and never be able to look at them the same way again. And the second barrier is one that I in particular was experiencing. I didn't want to hurt my partner's feelings. It is so easy for us to take these things personally and feel bad about ourselves if we feel like we haven't been meeting our partner's needs. So I really recommend having a conversation about the conversation where you say, I would love for our sex life to be everything that we can imagine it being. And I'm worried that if we talk about it, I might accidentally hurt your feelings, or I'm worried that if I tell you some of the things I think about, you're going to be judgmental. So what can we do to prepare the ground so that we can build space for that to be true and not hurt each other's feelings in the process? I mean, it seems to me, at least from the outside, that you are a person who is very comfortable talking about sex in a way that not a lot of us are. Why do you think it is that these conversations come more easily to you? Part of it is my training. I started at 18 years old, my very first semester in college. I do think that I have an added assist in being autistic. The way I absorb cultural messages just is not the same as the way an holistic person absorbs messages. So it was really easier for me to let go of the previous shame that I absorbed from my early life and drift into this other way of approaching sex conversations that made so much more sense. It's so much more rational and logical for talking about sex to be really the same as talking about any other health issue. Another thing that I found very interesting in this book is the way in which you define what it means to be sex positive, that it's not about all sex being positive or even everyone needing to like sex. It's more about autonomy. Why does that autonomy matter so much? That is the nature of living in a mammalian body. When we are in a stressed state, fight or flight, especially when we feel trapped or isolated, our brains physically are not able to interpret any sensation as pleasurable. But when we feel safe and connected, our brains can be in a state that allows them to interpret almost any sensation as pleasurable and something to approach with curiosity and a sense of play. You provide some very specific clear-eyed practices and tools in long-term conversation with a partner or partners for making sure that sex and your relationship 
that that connection is meaningful and good. But I do have to raise the question of this is a lot of work. And I think some people might hear this and say, why is all of this work, all of these hard conversations, why is it worth it? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the answer for some people is it is not. When life gets too complicated and stressful, it is easy for sex to drop off the list of priorities. But the couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long term have three characteristics. One is that they're really good friends. They trust and admire each other. Two, they prioritize sex. They decide that it matters. They stop doing all the other things they could be doing. And goodness knows we have so many things we could be doing. We close the door on our other responsibilities and identities and just play in this very specific and entertaining, sometimes very important, usually just very silly way that humans connect. I recommend that people have conversations like, what is it that you want when you want sex? And just as importantly, what is it that you don't want when you don't want sex? And just get to what is it that sex does in our relationship that makes it worth not doing all the other things that we could be doing. It's a lot less effortful to just watch TV for half an hour than it is to connect sexually with a partner. So why would you? Partners who have an answer to that question are the couples who find their way back to their, to each other. Emily, I want to end this conversation back with a topic that we talked about earlier, and that's about your own relationship. Are things in a different place for you now? Short answer, yes. I'm perimenopausal now, and I have long COVID, so I have a lot of obstacles. But at the end of writing this book, I had a hundred thousand words of guidance to teach me and my husband how to find our way back to each other, even in the midst of these other challenges. And the thing I am proudest of, if nobody else reads this book, it has already helped us make things better than they have been in the 12 years that we've been together. What does he think of the book? He's very proud of me. And he really likes that our sex life is better. <laughs> that is Emily Nagoski. Her latest book, Come Together, The Science and Art of Creating Lasting Sexual Connections, is out now. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in about five minutes, the challenges of uh, treating and housing the aging population of homeless people. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, meet the Boston artist behind a one-of-a-kind jukebox in Cambridge. Instead of songs, it plays stories from local residents. Start your morning here tomorrow. Celtics are again at the Garden tonight, this time to host the Indiana Pacers, 7.30 start time. 26 degrees now in Boston. Overnight tonight should stay cloudy, falling to about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, gray skies for the most part, highs about 35. Winter in Boston is no joke. Sometimes the city is covered by a beautiful blanket of snow. And sometimes the streets and sidewalks are treacherous because of thin layers of ice. We have a few tips from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston to help you survive and thrive in winter. First things first, bundle up when you're outside shoveling or salting. A warm coat with a hat and gloves, insulated boots, thick socks, and lightweight long johns can go a long way. Now for the fun. 
slap on ice skates at the Boston Common Frog Pond or other neighborhood rinks, but stay away from any body of water that might not be fully frozen. Or grab a sled and hit the hills. You'll find companions in just about any neighborhood park from the Emerald Necklace to Ronan Park to Bunker Hill. One, two, three. For more on enjoying winter in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says President Biden will be attending the transfer service of three Army reservists killed by a drone strike in Jordan over the weekend. The remains of the fallen soldiers will be returned to Dover Air Force Base on Friday, where Biden will join family members. Pentagon Press Secretary General Patrick Ryder says they will take necessary action to ensure U.S. forces are protected in the region. As part of any decision-making process, we take a wide range of considerations into account, again, to include what our broader regional goals uh, are, which from the very beginning has been to prevent uh, the situation in Israel uh, and Gaza from expanding into a broader conflict. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has yet to determine which Iran-backed militant group was responsible for the killings. It was the first deadly attack on U.S. forces since early October, when Hamas launched a surprise attack on Israel. A United Nations envoy is visiting Israel to gather information on allegations of sexual violence committed by Hamas against Israelis. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Pramila Patton is the U.N. Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. The U.N. says her mission is to give voice to Israeli survivors, witnesses, and recently released hostages who say Hamas sexually abused Israeli women during the October 7th attack on southern Israel and abused women in captivity in Gaza. The U.N. says the special representative is accompanied by experts in the, quote, safe and ethical interviewing of victims and witnesses of sexual violence. She will also visit the Israeli-occupied West Bank and meet recently released Palestinian detainees from Israeli jails and Palestinian officials and activists. The U.N. says the special representative will brief the press on her findings in mid-February. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. On Wall Street, stocks finish mixed today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Newton has not yet announced whether schools will be closed for a ninth day tomorrow because of a teacher strike. The teachers' union will speak tonight. It is asking for more money for social workers and teachers' aid. The city says there's not enough money to meet all the union's demands. Newton's school committee says it made another contract offer to the union today. The union has not said whether it was accepted. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is introducing a bill that would help recruit and retain paraeducators. They're classroom aides who support teachers, who work with students with disabilities, and facilitate small group lessons. But pay is low and turnover is high. The bill would provide funding to support recruitment efforts and professional development. More people are joining the state's health insurance exchange than at any other time in the past decade. Officials with the Massachusetts Health Connector say more than 72,000 people signed up during the most recent enrollment period. Audrey Morris-Gasteyer is the agency's executive director. She says the increase is due in part to people losing coverage from the state's mass health program and expanded eligibility for the low-cost connector care program. So the, the income limits for that program were increased from 300 percent of the federal poverty level up to 500 percent of the federal poverty level. That went in effect for coverage starting on January 1st. So that was a big message for us this open enrollment period was to help people realize they would have access to these expanded benefits. 
The expanded Connector Care program is a pilot. It is set to run through next year. We're learning more about the rare North Atlantic crate whale that has washed ashore on a beach in Martha's Vineyard. Eve Zukoff reports on what investigators believe killed the whale. Officials said it appeared a rope had entangled the young female near her tail. Boat collisions and entanglements in rope and fishing gear are the leading causes of death for the whales, whose population stands at just 350. But officials wouldn't declare what role that rope played in the whale's death until they could move it off the beach for the International Fund for Animal Welfare to look more closely. IFA's Misty Niemeyer will assist in the exam. We're going to be doing a full exam both externally and internally to look for causes of death. Right whale advocates say the death of a female is particularly devastating because it erases the possibility of more calves to help the critically endangered population recover. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. Now the forecast. A lot like today. Tonight should be clouds with temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies again. Should be drier, a little bit warmer. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Thursday, cloudy yet again, creeping to the low 40s. 26 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The country's homeless population is aging. In the 1990s, the average age of someone living on the street was around 30. Today, it's 50. That brings new challenges. And to talk us through some of them, Molly Harbarker is with us from Seattle. She's the editor of Project Homeless with the Seattle Times. Good to have you here. Of course. Thank you for having me. Why is the homeless population aging so quickly? So it's a combination of two things. One is that we have a growing homeless population, which means that there are more people who are aging while living on the street. But we also have a lot more of an influx of older people who are becoming homeless later in life. Is there a particular reason somebody might become homeless later in life now, whereas they would have been less likely to a few decades ago? Is it about the social safety net, the cost of living, all of that? It's all of that. Yeah, we we have a confluence of things. Over 30% of baby boomers are retiring with no retirement savings. We've also lived through a couple recessions at this point. And every time we have one of these rises in cost of living, that ripples on for a lot longer. And so our social security payments have not kept pace with all of that upheaval. It hasn't kept pace with inflation. And so as more people retire with less savings, they're more dependent on those social security payments that often don't pay rent in a lot of major cities anymore. Hmm. Older people have more frequent medical incidents regardless of their living circumstances. How does homelessness exacerbate those conditions? Your immune system tends to, to reflect about 20 to 30 years older. Even if you're in a shelter, you're often in a, a space with a lot of other people sharing and breathing the same air, which we, we know since COVID can be deadly. 
You also have less access to hygiene resources, even washing your hands. Homeless people have a really high risk of, of diseases that don't really come up for housed people like Shigella. And so all of these things compound and can really take both short-term and long-term tolls on your health. Are homeless services, shelters, and other organizations equipped to deal with an older population? For the most part, no. And that's not because they don't want to or they're not trying to. But most of our shelters are set up to serve the most amount of people possible. And that tends to mean that a lot of shelters, you wait in line, you get a mat and you lay on the ground. And in the morning, you get up off the ground and you go out and you spend the rest of the day outside or in a library or wherever you can find a warm, dry place to be. And that's not conducive for older people's bodies. There's also not a lot of medical services in, in shelters. And so there's just not a lot of places that can offer the amount of physical amenities that makes a place conducive to someone who's older, has medical issues, even just back pain, weak knees, that kind of thing. Are there solutions that have been effective at helping older homeless people specifically? Yeah. We have a veterans homeless voucher system that has been shown to be highly effective. And, and while not all veterans are older, they often have similar complex needs that a lot of our older people have. And we don't have a lot of federal investment in um, homelessness services specifically. But if we see a big influx of money put towards getting homeless people into housing, and then when you have those wraparound services like the VA provides in terms of medical, case management, social services, mental health, that kind of thing, you can be really successful at getting people off the streets quickly and keeping them in their housing long-term. That's Molly Harbarger, editor of Project Homeless with the Seattle Times. Thank you for talking with us. Of course, thank you for having me. Switch on a porch light at night, and chances are you will soon see moths and other insects. They're drawn to the light like, well, like moths to a flame. Recently, a team of scientists took high-speed videos of flying moths, and as NPR's Nell Greenfield Voice reports, they discovered why it is that a light bulb can make insects go in crazed circles. As a high school student, Yash Sandi traveled with his parents to a remote nature preserve in India. He says at night, someone switched on a light, and he was amazed at all the different moths that suddenly appeared. And on this one night, there are like thousand insects or thousand moths of various different colors and shapes. And I was like, why are they even coming to light? The answers he got were unsatisfying. Maybe the light blinded them. Maybe they were confusing the light with the moon. And all the people who studied moths said, these are ideas, no one's tested them concretely. So we don't know for sure. This mystery is what got him into science. He now works at the McGuire Center for Lepidoptera and Biodiversity at the Florida Museum of Natural History. And a while ago, at a science conference, he met a guy named Sam Fabian, who specialized in taking high-speed videos of dragonflies. The two teamed up to take videos of moths around lights. Fabian, who's at Imperial College London, collected some moths from his backyard. And so I was taking these into the lab. I was, I was putting them in the flight arena, attaching tiny little markers to the back of the thorax, which is the bit that's right in between the wings. The reflective markers let a motion capture camera track exactly what a moth did and how it positioned its body as it approached a UV light bulb. And what I saw was that the moth 
flew up over the UV light and immediately flipped itself upside down. That was weird. Why would the moth turn itself upside down? If you're going to fly around, that is not generally a good idea, and so that says something's gone wrong. As the researchers videotaped more and more insects reacting to light bulbs, what they saw is that almost all flying insects tried to position their bodies so that their backs were facing the light. Fabian says this would make sense in a natural environment like a dark forest, because there. The brightest thing would be the sky, and the sky is generally above the ground if everything's going right, and so you can use that to work out which way is up really, really fast, which is as important for insects as it is for airline pilots. Fabian says this would make sense in a natural environment like a dark forest, because there the brightest thing. Would be the sky. It's quick. It's simple. It's it's not dumb. It's extremely smart because it's very finely tuned. He says both pilots and insects can get disoriented when they're speeding in all directions through dark three-dimensional space. But insects, unlike pilots, don't have dashboard instruments. For these bugs, the best indication of what direction is up. Is light. It's quick. It's simple. It's it's not dumb. It's extremely smart because it's very finely tuned. And it worked great until the invention of the light bulb. And then it's suddenly not such a good idea anymore. In the journal Nature Communications, the researchers and their colleagues show how insects keeping their backs to light explains their weird flight patterns around light fixtures. Avalon Owens is at Harvard University. She says this new work has the field of entomology buzzing. Like we've probably been wondering why moths fly to lights since the invention of fire,、um, and all of a the sudden there's a totally new observation of this phenomenon, and it comes with this new explanation that really hadn't been put out before. She finds it convincing. But still has lots of questions about the impact of artificial light on insects, especially because there's more and more of it lighting up the night sky. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Farmers are calling it the Siege of Paris. For the second day in a row, thousands of angry French farmers have blocked major highways leading in and out of the French capital. It's all part of an intensifying standoff between the farmers and the French government. Reporter Rebecca Rossman brings us voices from one of the barricades just north of the city. This is the sound of one of dozens of tractors blocking a major highway just a few miles from Charles de Gaulle Airport, the busiest in Europe. Ça peut durer minimum 24 heures. Thirty-three-year-old sugar beet farmer Florian Portemer, who owns one of these tractors, says he's ready to stay here as long as it takes. While the blockages have only caused minor traffic delays so far, the government says a major disruption could leave Paris with only three days worth of food supplies. On rencontre beaucoup de difficultés. Our expenses are going up and up, Portemar says. One of many complaints farmers have against the French government, along with things like unfair foreign competition and overregulation. Aujourd'hui, c'est vraiment un ras-le-bol général, une asphyxie. 
There's a general feeling of being fed up, he says, a suffocation linked to all these charges and tight standards. By tight standards, he means the web of France's bureaucratic regulations. For example, regulations for growing and selling organic produce, which are stricter than the rest of the European Union and other countries beyond. France's rules combating climate change also affect French farmers more than elsewhere in Europe. French farmers say this puts them at a huge disadvantage, with merchants favoring cheaper imports, which aren't subject to the same controls. I'm launching a new plan, said France's new prime minister Gabriel Attal before the French parliament today. He promised the government would implement controls on the amount of foreign produce brought into France and asked the farmers to end their siege. The government has also vowed to give farmers emergency funding and to guarantee them a living wage. But all this hasn't been enough to convince the farmers to pack up. An opinion poll this week showed 90 percent of French citizens back their protest. Some of those I spoke to on this highway said they were barely taking in 1,200 euros a month, about $1,300. But they also say their solidarity has never been stronger as they settle in for the long week ahead. The farmers say they plan to stay at least until Thursday. Many have set up tents, barbecues and portable toilets. There's even a bonfire and loudspeakers blasting electronic pop music. It's a beautiful demonstration, says Pierre de Wilde, a fourth-generation farmer who is camping out on the highway with his 22-year-old son. And that's exactly why we're all here, says de Wilde, pointing at his son in the distance, so that we can support the next generation of farmers to come. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Chenevière-les-Louves, France. for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Associate Attorney General is stepping down. Coming up after 6 o'clock on WBUR, Vanita Gupta reflects on investigating the police and looks back on the department's response to the landmark Dobbs abortion ruling. Keep listening. Celtics look to keep the momentum going after last night's come-from-behind win at the Garden. Tonight, they're back at the Garden, this time to host the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins are off until next week. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Sunshine's taking a few more days off. Clouds have settled in for tonight. Should be overcast all night, about 24 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds inching up to the mid-30s. Thursday, cloudy again, a bit milder, up in the low 40s. Could stay gray for Friday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 26 degrees now in Boston. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib & Associates Architects providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. 
HabibARCH.com. Palestinian journalists have become Gaza's window to the world, documenting the destruction, the killings, despite the danger. 22-year-old Plesti Al-Akad is one of them. I don't want the world to see us as numbers only. No, I want them to know us, to know how we're feeling. Al-Akad talks about her reporting and the future she wants to see. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from B.R. Cohn. B.R. grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya after his parents were forced to flee war in neighboring Sudan. When he was 17, he moved to Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, to attend school. After he arrived, he needed to get some documents from the Sudanese embassy, but when he went looking for the embassy, he couldn't find it. He asked people for directions. No one knew where it was. Then an older woman tapped him on the back. And then she's like, hey, my son. That, that was the first word she said. Hey, my son, how you doing? And then I said, I'm good. She said, okay, I saw you talking to multiple people. And I was wondering, are you asking them for money? Or are you asking them for anything to eat? Or a, or, or, or a, shelter, a shelter? And I was like, no, thank you. She thought I was homeless because in Kenya, it's very common kids at 17, kid at 15, kid at 12, kid of any age can be on the street looking for survival. So when she, she asked me if I was looking for anything to eat or any financial help, and I told her, no, I'm actually looking for Sudan Embassy. And that's when she said, oh, it's actually a block away. And she gave me the direction, but she she, she told me, you know, the reason why she asked me is because she's a mom. And as a mother, I wouldn't want my child to be on the street. And anytime I see a child on the street, I kind of feel like I have an obligation to help. So that taught me a very powerful lesson. You never know what kind of impact you can make to somebody when you give them a helping hand. Like that older woman gave me a helping hand, even though I didn't need the help. It kind of sow a seed of kindness in me. And every time I see somebody who is going through something, I always reflect upon that and try to help. B.R. Cohn is a student at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He hopes to one day start a nonprofit to provide housing and social support for people living on the streets, an idea partly inspired by his Unsung Hero. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. A Broadway legend has died. Three-time Tony Award-winning actress Cheetah Rivera died today after a short illness. She was 91. The original Anita in West Side Story, Rivera appeared in more than 20 Broadway musicals over six decades. Jeff London has this appreciation. She was one of the last true Broadway stars, and she created indelible roles. Anita in West Side Story. Anita's gonna get her kicks tonight. 
Rose in Bye Bye Birdie. An English teacher, an English teacher, if only you'd been an English teacher. Velma Kelly in Chicago. Come on, baby, why don't we paint the town? And all that jazz. And Aurora in Kiss of the Spider Woman. But you're caught in the web of the spider woman in her velvet cape. You can scream. She was everything Broadway was meant to be. Lawrence Maslon co-produced the PBS series Broadway. She was spontaneous and compelling and talented as hell uh, for decades and decades on Broadway. Once you saw her, you never forgot her. So you'd think Cheetah Rivera was a Broadway baby from childhood, but she wasn't. Born Dolores Conchita Figueroa del Rivero in Washington, D.C., she told an audience at a Screen Actors Fund interview that she was a tomboy and drove her mother crazy. She said, I'm putting you in, in ballet class so that you, we can rein in some of that energy. So I, I, I'm very grateful. Rivera took to ballet so completely that she got a full scholarship to the School of American Ballet in New York. But when she went with a friend to an audition for the tour of a Broadway show, Rivera got the job. Goodbye ballet, hello Broadway. In 1957, she landed her breakout role, Anita in West Side Story, with a score by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. Hearing America was just mind-boggling, that rhythm. That's Rivera from a 2007 interview with NPR for the show's 50th anniversary. I just couldn't wait to do it. It was such a challenge. And being Latin, you know, it was a welcoming sound. West Side Story allowed Rivera to reveal not only her athletic dancing chops, but her acting and singing chops. Leonard Bernstein taught her the score himself. I mean, I remember sitting next to Lenny and his uh, starting with a boy like that, teaching it to me and me saying, I, I, I'll never do this. I, I can't hit those notes. I don't know how to hit those notes. And, and he made me do it. A boy like that, kill your brother. Forget that boy and find another. One of your own kind, stick to your own kind. And being able to sing, act, and dance made her a valuable Broadway commodity, says Lawrence Maslon. She was the first great triple threat because by the late 50s, early 60s, uh, Broadway directors like Jerome Robbins and Bob Fosse saw the need to have performers who could do all three things and do them really well. And from 1960 to 2013, she headlined some big hits and some big flops. But in 1986, Rivera was in a serious taxi accident. Her left leg was shattered, and the doctors said she'd never dance again. But she did. 
differently, she told NPR in 2005. We all have to be realistic. I don't do flying splits anymore. I don't do backflips and all the stuff that I used to do. I, you want to know something? I don't want to. But her stardom never diminished, and the accolades flowed. She won several Tony Awards, including one for Lifetime Achievement, a Kennedy Center Honor, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Rivera didn't do much television or film. She was completely devoted to the stage, says Lawrence Maslon. That's why they're called Broadway legends, because hopefully you get to see them live, because you'll never get to see them in another form in quite the same way. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast tonight. A lot like today, just darker. Lots of clouds around tonight. Temperatures just about where they are now in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mainly cloudy skies again. Should be dry in the mid-30s. Thursday, cloudy yet again, but creeping to the low 40s. It's 5.59. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Georgia, three communities are in mourning after three soldiers were killed in a drone strike in Jordan. Our story is coming up. Also, President Biden says he's decided what the U.S. response will be to the drone attack, but he's not yet providing details. Today is Tuesday, January 30th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a top official at the U.S. Justice Department is leaving her post and warning that we should not take things like the rule of law and democracy for granted. There have been too many events over the last several years that I think have tested some of our more fundamental precepts about this. An exit interview with the Associate Attorney General coming up. Also, one of the most successful songwriting teams in pop history is getting the prestigious Gershwin Prize. It's 6.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel and Hamas leaders are both expressing reservations about the possibility of a ceasefire and an exchange of prisoners and hostages. 
As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, both sides say they're committed to long-standing demands. The proposal calls for the release of some Israeli hostages held by Hamas and some Palestinian prisoners jailed by Israel. This would take place during a ceasefire that could last several weeks. But Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu says he's still seeking, quote, total victory. We will not conclude this war without achieving all of its goals. This means eliminating Hamas and returning all of our hostages. Hamas leaders say they're studying the proposal, but are seeking an end to the fighting in Gaza, not just a temporary pause. The U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are all involved in efforts to broker a deal. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush confirmed today her campaign is under federal investigation over how she spends funds on security. From St. Louis Public Radio, Jason Rosenbaum has more. Bush said the Department of Justice was reviewing how her campaign spent money on personal security. Citing threats to her personal safety, the St. Louis area Democrat acknowledges spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign money on security services. I have not used any federal tax dollars for personal security services. Any reporting that I have used funds for personal security is simply false. Bush has paid campaign funds to her husband for security. That's not illegal as long as the relative is doing bona fide work and being paid fair market values. Bush says she's cooperating with the DOJ investigation. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. House Republicans are continuing to push for an impeachment vote against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Homeland Security Committee expected to vote today on two articles of impeachment against Mayorkas, which would clear the way for a vote in the full House as early as next week. House Republicans have accused the Homeland Security Secretary of willful and systematic refusal to enforce immigration laws. UPS announced today it's cutting 12,000 jobs. Marlon Hyde of member station WABE in Atlanta has more. The package delivery giant saw a drop in the number of deliveries and supply chain issues in 2023 and is feeling the effects of a contract agreement last summer that gave its union workers raises. UPS's revenue fell nearly 8% in the fourth quarter last year. CEO Carol Tome says by eliminating 12,000 positions, the company will save a billion dollars. We have about 85,000 UPSers who are management, and this could be full-time and part-time management. The targeted headcount falls really within that group. UPS expects revenue this year to be about $92 billion. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two current and two former Massachusetts state troopers are accused of accepting bribes in exchange for giving passing scores on tests for commercial driver's licenses. Prosecutors say most of the tests were done in Stoughton. Two civilians are also charged in the scheme. Here's WBUR's Katie Cole. The defendants face charges including conspiracy, extortion, and perjury. Prosecutors allege that in exchange for commercial licenses, the defendants received goods or services like a snowblower or a $10,000 driveway installation. Here's acting U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts, Joshua Levy. It's always disheartening to discuss allegations that a fellow member of law enforcement has violated his or her oath. Yet preserving the integrity of our legal system, including holding law enforcement accountable, is paramount. Levy said that law enforcement identified over two dozen licenses given to drivers who did not actually pass their tests. He said the RMV has been notified. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Katie Cole. 
State education leaders say a program to cover the cost of community college tuition and books has already helped more than 4,500 students. The state launched the so-called Mass Reconnect program last fall. As WBR's Carrie Young reports, it announced the update today at the annual Condition of Education Summit. Officials with Governor Mara Healey's administration say the program fits into the larger effort to stabilize, heal, and transform the state education system after the pandemic-era disruptions. Higher Education Commissioner Noe Ortega says the governor hopes to expand the reach of Mass Reconnect next year with a proposed $24 million budget increase. We also want to get our institutions in this following year to be thinking more intentionally about what they can do in the area of student support. Right, because not, it's not enough to just get students to come into the door and enroll in our colleges. What are we going to do for them next? Additional program data will be released in February at the next Board of Higher Education meeting. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The U.S. Department of Labor is awarding Massachusetts funding to help deal with the effects of the opioid crisis. The nearly $800,000 grant will support workers in fields such as recovery and community health. It will also provide vocational training for people who have been affected by opioid addiction. The forecast cloudy tonight. We've already reached the nighttime temperature of 25 degrees. Tomorrow should be another cloudy day, but milder in the mid-30s. No relief from the gray on Thursday, maybe not on Friday either. Cloudy skies, temperatures moving up to about 42 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Department of Defense now says more than 40 people were injured in the drone strike on a U.S. outpost in Jordan near the borders of Iraq and Syria this past Sunday. President Biden called the families of the three soldiers killed in the attack. They were all from Georgia, and their home communities are just beginning to mourn the losses. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting is covering this story. Hey, Grant. Hey, good afternoon. Tell me about the three soldiers who were killed. Well, all three were members of the Army Reserve's 718th Engineer Company based at Fort Moore near the Alabama border. The oldest was Sergeant William J. Rivers. He was 46. He lived in Carrollton, west of Atlanta, and he was an electrician in the Army Reserve. In 2018, he was part of a nine-month rotation to Iraq. He'd collected a number of service medals, in fact, for his deployments. He was trained at Fort McGuire Dix in New Jersey, but he had been with Fort Moore-based companies since last year. Um, Brianna Moffat and Kennedy Saunders were both specialists until receiving posthumous promotions to sergeant from the president just today. Moffat was just 23 years old. Um, she's from Savannah. The mayor there, Van Johnson, he spoke about her today. Our city is heartbroken. And she was a citizen soldier among young people who go to service. The Bible says there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. And so we love Brianna Moffat for loving us. The mayor has ordered flags in the city to fly at half staff in her honor. And you know, something that really speaks to how young she was, was that her old high school there in Savannah is planning an assembly in her honor for later this week. Yeah, so young. Just 23, you said. And I understand the third victim was just a year older? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Saunders was only 24. Um, She was from Waycross, a South Georgia town of less than 15,000 people. You know, it's 
It's the kind of place where news travels really quickly. Scott Moy is the county manager in surrounding Ware County. He made the decision to lower flags in the county to half staff as soon as he knew that Ware County had lost one of their own. You know, graduate from high school here, she actually graduated with my youngest daughter. And um, I don't know, I just, it was something that we wanted to, to do to honor her and recognize her and uh, extend our thoughts and prayers to the family. Yeah, Saunders was a basketball player at Ware County High School. She was still a youth soccer and basketball coach when she was home in Waycross. She was also newly an aunt, and she volunteered for this deployment. So people there in Georgia are offering condolences. What else are they saying about this incident, about, uh, about everything that happened? Well, you know, in Savannah, Mayor Van Johnson is joining the voices who are asking for some justice for these service members. I hope and trust that the United States of America will actively investigate and hold those accountable for these types of acts. Yeah, and so on Friday, President Biden will attend the dignified transfer of their bodies back to U.S. soil at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. And in Savannah and Waycross, officials say the flags will remain at half-staff until the sun sets on the soldiers' funerals. Thank you, Grant. Thank you for having me. Grant Blankenship with Georgia Public Broadcasting. The hit British songwriting team of Elton John and Bernie Taupin have just won the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about this latest in a long list of awards for the duo. First, a top official at the U.S. Justice Department is leaving this week. Vanita Gupta manages a huge portfolio from civil rights and policing to abortion and immigration. She sat down with NPR's Carrie Johnson today to reflect on her tenure. For nearly three years now, Vanita Gupta says the job of Associate Attorney General, the third highest ranking official at the DOJ, has been a sprint. I have been in situations where I have literally been running down a hallway and crossing another person running down in the opposite direction just so that we can convey information and make sure that we're having the types of robust discussions that we need to on, on matters of the day. Those matters of the day can range from civil rights and the environment to moments of tragedy. Gupta says some of the most meaningful and painful experiences have come in meetings with victims of gun violence. Street crime in Chicago, the racially motivated killings at a grocery store in Buffalo, and the murder of 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, in May 2022. These trips are... They are ones that will stick with me forever. This month, federal authorities said some of those people may have died because of the botched law enforcement response. Family members sobbed as they heard the DOJ findings, she says. I talk about them a lot because I think it is important to understand that the trauma that lives in the aftermath of these acts goes on long after the media goes away. She says the DOJ is working to support those survivors and first responders who are traumatized after seeing the most awful things. This has been Gupta's second tour at the Justice Department. In the Obama year, she led the Civil Rights Division, launching systemic investigations of police departments that violated the Constitution. Those pattern or practice investigations fell out of favor in the Trump administration. But Gupta and her colleagues have revived those tools. We are operating to ensure effectiveness. And when we find places where we are less than effective or that need improvement, we have to be willing to 
take a look at ourselves and see what we can do better. Another top priority for Gupta has been responding to the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which threw out an abortion precedent on the books for nearly 50 years. Dobbs dealt a devastating blow to reproductive freedom in the United States, and the decision has been greatly disproportionate in its effect. The greatest burdens have been felt by people of color, those with limited financial means, uh, and other vulnerable populations. As the fight over abortion rights continues, the Justice Department's involved in two pending Supreme Court cases about abortion, supporting access to mifepristone, which is used in medication abortions, and demanding hospitals live up to a law that says facilities that participate in Medicare have to provide abortions when they're necessary to stabilize an emergency room patient. We've heard some of the horror stories of women being denied emergency care, being told to sit in parking lots while they're bleeding out, etc., because doctors literally are afraid of being prosecuted for making the wrong decision or wrong determination about whether something is an emergency requiring abortion care to save a woman's life. The Justice Department's also feuding with Texas in the Supreme Court over that state's move to limit federal immigration agents. Gupta says the DOJ will protect the federal government's interests. As she prepares to leave on Friday, she says she's not certain what comes next for her. I'm going to take some rest, uh, maybe smother my kids with a little overparenting, and read some good books. Gupta says she spent her whole life in public service, so she may find a way back again. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Today, Sir Elton John unlocked a new level in awards accumulation. Rocket Earlier this month, the musician won an Emmy to go with his Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Awards. Now, Elton John can add another G to his EGOT for Gershwin. As NPR's Netta Ulubi reports, Elton John and his longtime collaborator Bernie Taupin have won the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. The Gershwin Prize, established in 2007, is now one of the most prestigious awards in popular music. And it tends to go to celebrities, such as John and Taupin, the creators of massive hits that have sold hundreds of millions of albums. Previous winners include Paul Simon, Smokey Robinson, and last year, Joni Mitchell. The Gershwin Prize is awarded annually by the Library of Congress. Elton John and Bernie Taupin are the third songwriting duo to win. Librarian of Congress Carla Hayden says of their dozens of hits, she is partial to this one. I think my favorite song has to be Benny and the Jets. (laughs) And I, I smile and laugh about it because it was a number one hit on African American radio stations. Hayden and her friends, as young people, had absolutely no idea who the musicians were, she says. But we loved that song and played it over and over again. And then we were like, oh, they're great. Oh, my. Their partnership is so similar to Ira and George Gershwin. But these two British gentlemen got the prize named for the Gershwins, says Hayden, for creating a catalog that's become part of the American songbook. It includes chart toppers like Crocodile Rock, Candle in the Wind, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road from 1973. 
the musicians met in 1967 when they both answered a newspaper advertisement seeking songwriters, said Elton John in 2013 on WHYY's Fresh Air. I, I was in a band. I didn't like playing in the band. Uh, I didn't like where we were musically. I was very shy. I was a little overweight. Uh, but I answered this advertisement. That changed my life. That whole thing, that advertisement in the New Musical Express. And for more than half a century, his collaboration with Bernie Taupin has been unorthodox. And you know, I enjoy the process of writing to his lyrics and the, the weird process of him giving me a lyric, me going to a studio and never writing with him in the same room. It's a magical event. He, he's a very, and always has been, a very cinematic uh, storyteller in his lyrics. There's a visual side. As soon as I look at the lyrics, visually I can see what's going on. Fans will be able to see both musicians on their local PBS stations when the Gershwin Prize Tribute Concert is broadcast April 8th. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. Goodbye, Norma Jean. No, I never knew you at all. You had the grace to hold yourself But those around you crawled. They crawled out of the woodwork And they whispered You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the U.S. national debt recently hit a record $34 trillion in business news tonight. Can government debt ever get too high? Eventually, you rack up huge debts and nobody trusts you anymore. The economic debate about government debt coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 23rd. And ZTech Associates, providing on-site and remote IT support, cybersecurity, and compliance for Boston-area biotechs, financial firms, and more. ZTechNet.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Ups and downs at the closing bell on Wall Street today. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ lost ground. The S&P fell less than a tenth of a percent. The NASDAQ dropped more than three-quarters of a percent. Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals hopes to win federal approval for its new painkiller by the middle of this year. The company said today its experimental drug is as effective as treating post-surgical pain as opioids are, but there is no risk of addiction. The drug was tested on more than 2,000 people recovering from various surgeries. It's now headed to a large late-stage trial. And Tom Brady's nutrition and clothing company is emerging with a Boston-based sportswear firm. TB12 Nutrition and Brady Brand Apparel are now under one umbrella with the brand Noble. The firm say they want to become a complete wellness company with a focus on sports gear and nutrition. Noble is based in Dorchester, but it's not clear where the combined company is going to be headquartered. 25 degrees in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A case pending before the Supreme Court could profoundly impact when gun laws violate the Second Amendment. It's the latest in ongoing courtroom battles over guns, who can own them, and when the government can pass laws restricting them. But for most of U.S. history, the Second Amendment was actually one of the country's sleepier amendments. There were rarely court cases about it. It was almost never used to challenge laws. So how did the Second Amendment go from being practically overlooked to such a staple of Supreme Court controversy? Ramtin Arablouei, host of NPR's history podcast, Throughline, has the story. It's dawn in Okima, Oklahoma. Two cars, a Plymouth and a Ford, wind down the sleepy, dusty streets. In each car sit men with stockings and handkerchiefs over their faces, pistols and machine guns in their hands. This gang is about to attempt one of the few successful double heists in American history. As the first rays of light bounce off the bank windows, the gang strikes, taking two separate banks at once. Inside, they tie and gag employees, force a bank officer to open the safe. Word of the robberies splashes across local newspapers. Two institutions held up, bandits leaving 15 tied. Okima's two national banks were robbed simultaneously of $19,000 Saturday. The robberies were staged with clock-like precision, and the gang fled. Eventually, Jack Miller, one of those robbers, gets caught crossing state borders with an unregistered sawed-off shotgun. Police arrest him for the illegal gun, and his lawyer does something pretty much unheard of for 1938. He says the law used to arrest Miller violates his Second Amendment right. 27 words in the Bill of Rights that had almost never been litigated before. Probably known to many, certainly etched into my brain, that says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is Duke Law Professor Joseph Bloker. He says, to some people's surprise, a district judge agrees that Miller's Second Amendment rights had been violated. So the judge orders Jack Miller released. The government appeals that ruling all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the question they pose to the court is basically this. Is the Second Amendment about a militia's right to bear arms or an individual's. And the government wins. Uh, the unanimous opinion, pretty short. Um, but what the court says is that Jack Miller's possession of this sawed-off shotgun had no reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. We construe the amendment as having relation to military service. And we are unable to say that a sawed-off shotgun has any relation to the militia. Supreme Court Justice James C. McReynolds. In its first true Second Amendment ruling, the Supreme Court seemed to suggest that the Second Amendment, in their eyes, is about a militia's right to bear arms, not an individual's, like Jack Miller. That was the Supreme Court's interpretation for nearly 70 years. As the decades passed, more guns were imported into America, new gun laws were passed, often in response to political violence. Other gun laws were stopped, often by groups like the NRA. And then, in 2008, everything would change. My interest was 
plainly to vindicate the meaning of the Second Amendment and the right secured by the Second Amendment. Robert Levy, a libertarian lawyer, had been on a campaign to get the Supreme Court to say that the Second Amendment applied to people's individual right to bear arms at home, not just a militia's. This is him speaking to NPR in 2008. This is about possessing an ordinary garden variety firearm for self-defense within the home. Levy's team set their sights on challenging a Washington, D.C. law that banned handguns. He vetted people who wanted to change the law and put together a small group, which included a man named Dick Heller, a security guard who wanted a handgun at home for self-defense. By 2008, that case had worked its way up to the Supreme Court. The case would become known as D.C. versus Heller, or as people in legal circles, like Duke Law School's Joseph Bloker call it, just Heller. Heller was, was the court's really first in-depth engagement with the Second Amendment. And in a five to four decision, the court says it is not, the right is not limited to the organized militia. It does encompass at least some right to have some weapons for self-defense, at least in the home. For the very first time, the court ruled the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to have a gun unconnected with service in a militia. But, and this is really, really important, sometimes gets overlooked, the court also says that right, like all constitutional rights, is subject to regulation. And the court actually lists a bunch of regulations which it suggests are presumptively okay. The court's opinion should not be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings. Still, Heller opened the floodgates. So the, the court is bombarded with people asking the court to hear Second Amendment cases for a decade. There's a lot of activity happening in the lower courts, more than a thousand cases in the 10 years after, after Heller. And the justices are just staying out of it. Like, we're just going to let the lower courts figure this out, right? Then in 2022, in a case known as Ruin, the Supreme Court got involved again, this time with another interpretation of the Second Amendment. In an opinion written by Clarence Thomas, the court lays out something new. The court said that the only thing that matters when you're evaluating a modern gun law is whether it is consistent with this nation's history of weapons regulation. Uh, that's the test from now on. The court essentially said any gun law today must resemble a gun law from the 17 and 1800s in order to be constitutional. What what most of us are hoping for is some more guidance. Like, what do you mean about, you know, that the things have to be analogous to, to historical regulations? Are you supposed to bring in historians as experts? Like, give us some more guidance. I think this is one of the things that I think is, is troubling for even people who would self-identify as originalists, that is, people who believe that in a meaningful way the, the meaning of the Constitution was set at the time of its ratification, even for people who, who really feel strongly about that proposition, it's still tough to try to find meaningful guidance for modern gun laws in 1791. That's when the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment were ratified. Currently, the Supreme Court is weighing whether the Second Amendment allows a law that restricts gun rights for people accused of domestic violence. It's a chance for them to lay out how to look back at history to evaluate when gun laws are constitutional. That was Ramtin Arablouei, one of the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. 
To learn more about the history of the Second Amendment, check out the full podcast episode wherever you get your podcasts. This story from Throughline comes from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Boston Celtics look for another win tonight at the Garden as they host the Indiana Pacers. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins are off until next week. Clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures about where they are now, 25 degrees. Tomorrow, more clouds inching up to the mid-30s. Thursday, cloudy once again, a little bit milder. Temperatures in the low 40s. 25 degrees now in Boston at 6.30. WBUR supporters include Explo. Where curiosity fuels discovery, Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org summer.